Hello and welcome to the first episode of Rock Talk with me, Dr. Cropper. Now I should preface this by saying that I am in no way, shape, or form a doctor. It's just a catchy name and because there's going to be a sort of educational uh, bent to this show, think of it like a uh, if there was a university course in the sort of stuff that I'm going to be talking about, it's sort of uh, told from that angle so that's why i called it that i'm not trying to say that i'm an actual doctor so uh right now that we've got that out of the way for this first episode i thought i would just give you all a little bit of background into my musical journey and how i became interested in the uh the artists and genres that i'm mainly going to be talking about on this show so uh i guess my my musical journey probably started uh while i was still in the womb my parents uh actually saw the rolling stones on their voodoo lounge tour at the old uh cne stadium in toronto uh while my mom was about two months pregnant with me so uh i was uh, corrupted if if you will from an early age uh, or if you even call it age when you're still, uh, in anyhow. Um, so the, both my parents obviously were, uh, or are very into music. Um, most people in my family are, um, my mom would, uh, play more, uh, praise and worship stuff. And I used to listen to that a lot with her when I was little, but then the first, um, band that I can remember really hooking me was The Doors. They were certainly uh, my first love. I used to listen to them with my dad, especially the first album, all the time in the car, and uh, Light My Fire, which I referred to as the telephone song then, uh, was and still is to this day my uh, number one favorite song by anybody. Uh, It's just, uh, I don't know exactly what it is it's just uh, I mean it's complex and ambitious while also at least with the lyrics being relatively simple but the uh, the rhyme scheme is so perfect and uh, so there's a lot to love about it no matter how closely you're paying attention and then also when my dad uh, lived in Ohio for 10 years it had great uh, sentimental value to me and I could listen to it when I missed him and that. So, uh, yeah, that's light my fire and my interest in the doors. And actually my dad took me, uh, to see, uh, the doors of the 21st century they were called, which was, uh, just Ray Manzarek and Robbie Krieger with, um, some other uh, musicians filling in for Jim Morrison, who obviously passed away in 1971 and John Densmore, who uh, elected not to join them on that uh, venture. And that was uh, my first concert and it was really a fantastic show and an awesome, excuse me, awesome experience uh, with my dad picking me up from school and surprising me and, 
uh, going down to Ontario Place and killing time before the show, getting fries that the seagulls harassed us for, and going on some little uh, water ride that they had, and then obviously the concert itself being the main attraction, and it really hooked me on live music, which has been a, a lifelong passion of mine since then. Uh, shortly after the, uh, after that, when, uh, while I was still very much, uh, a Doors fan, first and foremost, my dad also, uh, showed me a lot of Beatles stuff, which, uh, everybody at least respects them. Most people like them to some extent, and they would certainly be in my, uh, top five. They, uh, I don't have them as highly as, um, excuse me, my dad or uh, my brother or some others would uh, would probably like. But anyhow, um, I started to get into ACDC shortly after that. This view around when I was 10 years old. And uh, of course, every uh, prepubescent boy thinks that Big Balls is the most hilarious song they've ever heard. Uh, and I was no exception. Uh, it gets progressively less funny, I think, once you're on the wrong side of 14, but thankfully there's other better stuff in their catalog. Um, so I was very into ACDC uh, at that point when I was 10, and that started my path down towards heavier stuff, which uh, I'll come back to in a minute. Now, I mentioned the Rolling Stones. I uh, I would say I knew mainly only greatest hits at that point. My mom uh, would play them a lot. She uh, Start Me Up is her favorite song, which uh, I like. I wouldn't say it's my favorite, a little too uh, greatest hitsy for me. Um, not that that's an indictment. Uh, somebody will roast me for that. Um, she would also play Beast of Burden quite a bit, uh, which was her dad's uh, favorite Stone song, who uh, passed away before I was born. So I always had a soft spot for Beast of Burden because of that. Um, and so, right, we're, we're in 2005 when I'm 10, and the Stones release uh, their Bigger Bang album, which... Uh, as I would find out later, is not even close to their best album. But at the time, I thought, hey, it's new music from the Stones. And I lapped it up. And I still really like Rough Justice and think it's a an underrated song that had it come out earlier in their career would be much more highly respected. It has some really clever lines from Mick, and uh, the, uh, the instrumentation is quite good as well. Um, so I... I sort of, I carried on along that trajectory, um, liking the Doors, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, ACDC, and a few other uh, assorted bands for uh, the rest of my preteen years. And then as I approached high school and through the first year or two of high school, as I think is true for a lot of people, you start listening to whatever's popular because everybody's trying to fit in at that stage of their life. And uh, 
in the late 2000s, early 2010s, that was a lot of rap and hip hop and some of the stuff in that sort of vein that came out while I was listening to uh, pop radio at, at that age. I still like, um, but I don't listen to the, those genres very much anymore. And then probably... I would say the most transformative uh, experience for me as a listener and what shaped my my tastes the most uh, was something that happened in, I want to say February, but it could have been January of, uh, I guess it would be 2011 because I was in grade 10 and uh, I was folding or putting laundry away one night in my room listening to uh key 107 the main classic rock uh station in this part of the world and fool in the rain by led zeppelin came on and i was completely transfixed by the what i would later find out is a uh a variation of a pretty shuffle that john bonham plays on that and just everything about the song so i stop putting the clothes away to sit there and uh, wait for them to say who that was when the song finished. Uh, and they said Led Zeppelin. Now, I was aware of Led Zeppelin, but not very comprehensively at that point. Uh, I had eight songs of theirs on my little iPod Nano that I got when I was somewhere around, I guess, 11 or 12 probably. And uh, my neighbor, who's uh, five or so years older than me, who used to babysit, my brother and I uh, just loaded it up with stuff from his computer. And so he gave me eight Zeppelin songs. I know Stairway to Heaven was one of them. Uh, Communication Breakdown was on there as well. And a couple other of what you would call the usual suspects. And I would listen to it from time to time and really like it. But at that point, they were still in the that sort of category of people that you listen to every once in a while and really enjoy and then forget to listen to for maybe even two months. And then one day you think, oh, hey, I haven't listened to them for a while. And you throw them on and then forget about them again. But after this, I was like, okay, wow, like. I don't know how I, the these guys were hidden from me in plain sight for so long, but I am going to start doing my homework. So I voraciously uh, started soaking up everything I could find about Led Zeppelin and dove headfirst down the rabbit's hole. And it's a, a journey that's been going on for over nine years since then. At first I bought up uh, all of the studio albums and listened to them many times through and then bought the official live albums and uh, the DVD and everything and then uh, it still wasn't enough and I I would read things about like in lists of top 10 live bands of all time and stuff they would always be there but there's uh, there's very few official live releases of theirs. So 
I figured there must be something that I'm missing, and sure enough, there was. So around uh, the end of grade 11, um, so about a year after I had my Fool in the Rain discovery, uh, I I believe I, I think it started with just searching like Led Zeppelin, Dazed and Confused live uh, in YouTube. And the version that came up was from the fourth night at Earl's Court in London in 1975, uh, which as it turns out is the second last time that they played Dazed and is a very good, ver very good version. Um, probably not the best of 75 and probably not top 25 all time, but still very good. And so I, I watched the, and thankfully there's video of that, which is probably why that's the one that I clicked, um, when I was searching for, through YouTube. So I watched that many, many times and then thought to myself, like, okay, Zach, you need to force yourself to check out a different version as well. And I clicked in the suggested and watched other songs from Earl's Court as well. But so I stayed, probably stayed with 75 first and then started to branch out. But anyway, that started, that opened up a whole new, uh, weirder and more wonderful rabbit's hole which is uh, the, their bootleg recordings, which um, are necessary if you want to dig deeper when it comes to Zeppelin. Because unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, there's very few official live releases of theirs. There's uh, the, uh, the BBC sessions, How the West Was Won, The Song Remains the Same, and the, the DVD that has five hours worth of stuff on it and then the reunion show and that's basically it when you compare that to other bands of their stature and certainly bands of their live stature it's uh practically nothing i mean the grateful dead by comparison who i'll get to in a minute have literally hundreds of official live releases and beyond that uh whatever isn't released live is pretty much available uh, as a soundboard uh, recording, which uh, most of the time is going to sound better than an audience recording, which uh, brings me back to Zeppelin. Not only are the, so the, there aren't that many official live recordings, so I start uh, dipping my toes in the bootleg waters, and the first thing that strikes me besides how good some of the performances are is how bad the sound quality is on some of these tapes. I thought like, gosh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to really dig into this stuff. It sounds so bad when you're used to only listening to um, official stuff. And so I, I don't even know how I stumbled across the, uh, the resources that are now essential to me for, knowing where to look when it comes to this stuff. I think it was probably just a Google search of like best Led Zeppelin show or 
best Led Zeppelin ver- like live version of Stairway to Heaven or whatever song I would have searched, probably Dazed and Confused. Um, and I stumbled across the official uh, fan forum on, which is like run through uh, LedZeppelin.com, which is a phenomenal uh, resource for, uh, you know, bouncing ideas off of each other and gleaning information from people who, especially at that point, but still now knew much, much more about this stuff uh, than I do or did. And then I also stumbled across this blog that uh, a fellow did in 2008 where he listened to every uh, Led Zeppelin concert for which there was a recording at that time in a year, basically one per day uh, for, I think there was like 267 or 288 at the time that he did it. Anyway, so I stumbled across that site and he would do, you know, do a write-up about each show as he went along that year. Uh, and it's all still there. So I would read those and that would give me a clue of which shows would be a good starting point. Uh, and I ordered, at that point, I didn't realize how you could download them for free. So I found on some site kind of similar to eBay. I don't even remember what it was called. A guy from England selling them, uh, who was really awesome to deal with, uh, Harry Chera. And, uh, I got a lot of recordings from him. He would, uh, send the discs over for via, via Royal Airmail from England. And, there would be uh, like Christmas morning every time I went to the mailbox and see a box from him. Uh, I know the uh, the first batch of shows that I got were, I know June 21st, 1977, Los Angeles, uh, the famous Listen to This Eddie show. Uh, That's All Right, New York. Uh, which is February 12th, 75 at uh, Madison Square Garden. I think March 21st, 75 in Seattle, which is probably my favorite show by them and by extension by anybody. Uh, March 27th, 75 in Los Angeles, last night of the tour. And... I feel like there were five. The other one might have been June 23rd, 77. The uh, For badge holders only, I actually have the uh, Sergeant Page's Badge Holders Club Band title. Uh, but no, no, actually it was the June 27th, 77, the, the last night in LA, which as I would find out later is not actually the uh, the best, but at the time I always conflated last night in a place with best, which is kind of a loose general rule that you can sometimes follow, but not always. Um, so yeah, it started with those five and now I for sure have over a hundred, maybe over 150 Zeppelin shows in my, uh, collection, whether I have the discs or just downloaded it. I try to listen to them all on the day that they happened, which uh, keeps me busy certain times of year, 
like May and June, which it is uh, right now. Um, and that, so the Zeppelin rabbit's hole and exploring all of the, uh, the idiosyncrasies of their live history and reading biographies of, uh, band members of Red Plants and Pages, as well as, uh, Richard Coles, who was their tour manager, that kept me busy for, um, close to five years. And then partway through my, uh, time at McMaster University here in, uh, Ontario, I, I discovered the Grateful Dead. Now, when I say discovered, I knew who they were, but had never really listened to them. I, I tried at one point a few years earlier to get into them because I knew that they played long songs and long shows, which I was a fan of through Zeppelin. And I knew that they improvised a lot. And so I thought, Oh, like they're probably somebody I would like. And I, just I had no idea where to start, so I just went to YouTube and searched like Grateful Dead and started typing and so to see what would come up next. And I think Dark Star was one of the ones that came up. And I thought, oh, okay, that sounds like it's probably a, a good jam. And then I clicked on it, and the first couple of results were all like over half an hour. So I thought, ah, oh, there we go, it is. And the one that I clicked on, I believe, was uh, November 11th, 73 at Winterland Arena in San Francisco, which um, is a, a very good version. But as I would later find out, by late 73, they they had been playing it for several years and had were really starting to play around with it. and playing it uh in a very jazzy way that uh could be uh a bit it's uh it's a tough uh it's a high barrier of entry for a newcomer to to start there um so i put it on and didn't really like it because i think there's a I think there's a tendency for all of us to uh, be a little bit um, hesitant to embrace a new uh, sound or artist or song or whatever it is that is too different from what we've heard before to easily categorize it. I think we like when things fit into boxes even if it's a box that we aren't usually a fan of if we know what to like oh it's a country song or it's a ballad or it's an up-tempo rocker that sort of thing we we're comfortable when we know where things fit like that especially uh certain personality types and i think uh for me being an intj uh we can talk about psychology sometime another day but i especially like categorizing things and at the time having never listened to the grateful dead or any jam band really throwing on a 73 dark star was just too out there and i didn't like it and sort of wrote them off and 
didn't give it another thought for quite a while. And then one summer, while my dad was still living in Ohio, uh, he and I stopped at the the Harvey's in Windsor, sort of across from University of Windsor. Oh, excuse me. And uh, we went in to get a burger on our way down to Ohio, and uh, this song was on that I thought sounded really cool. And I asked my dad who it was, and he said Grateful Dead, and I found out that it was Touch of Grey, which I now obviously uh, love quite a lot. Um, And then I, I made like a mental note, you know how you do like, oh, I got to check those guys out when I get home or whatever. But because we we're on the way to Ohio, I guess it was still like four hours from getting there. And then by the time I got down there, seeing my brothers and sisters and stepmom and the dogs and everything, we I just got sidetracked and forgot to do it. And who knows, it might have even been months or like a year or two after that when I finally remembered to uh, check out more of their stuff. And this time around when I looked into them, the the first song that I uh, stumbled across really hooked me, and that was Uncle John's Band, which uh, is still one of my favorites of theirs, probably second to Dark Star, actually, which now I really love now that I uh, have the time and proper mindset to embrace it. But um, yeah, I listened to Uncle John's Band, and it just totally entranced me uh almost like that fool of the rain experience with zeppelin um just the those pastoral opening chords and the sweet harmonies and everything it's like sitting around a little psychedelic campfire and uh so from there i listened to i think sugar magnolia and ripple and i really liked those three and then started to, I knew with them that the uh, the live stuff was really where it's at. Like, there's a much greater disparity between their live stuff and their studio output. Whereas, like Zeppelin, obviously they're a fantastic live band, but their studio albums are well, like all time great as well. The Grateful Dead, as I would later find out, really only have two studio albums that you would say are like all time greats. Uh, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, both released in 1970. Uh, Excuse me. So I went on iTunes and searched Grateful Dead and started scrolling through the live albums that were available. And uh, the only one that had all three of Uncle John's Band, Sugar Magnolia, and Ripple. Uh, and I might have been looking for one that had Dark Star as well, because I might have given it a second chance by that point and liked it a bit better. The only one that had all of those was Ladies and Gentlemen, which uh, is a compilation of their five nights at the Fillmore East in New York in April 1971, which... Uh, were the last shows that they played there before it closed two months later. 
So I bought that and there's 42 songs on it and it's uh, almost five hours long because it's a, a mix of the five nights, but they basically pick at least one version of every song that was played across the five nights. So that was uh, a, a big mouthful to digest, but I listened to it a bunch of times and really liked it. And then within a few weeks was ready to get another one. And I think the second one I got was Dick's Picks Volume 4, which contains my favorite and, in my opinion, the best version of Dark Star uh, from February 13th, 1970 at the Fillmore East. Uh, just a stunning piece of improvisation and group chemistry and dynamics and everything's just exactly perfect. It's like the, the Goldilocks version, if you will. Uh, and then I got the Fillmore West 1969 release. And then I think after that, the next one I probably got, apart from uh, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, the studio albums, uh, was the uh, the second show of their Europe 72 tour. Now, I'm not going to go too far into that because I'm going to do a whole episode about that tour. I think for the next episode, but, uh, yeah, I got that one and was, or no, yeah. Okay. I got one before that. It was, uh, sunshine daydream, the, uh, August 27th, 1972 show in, uh, Oregon, which is very highly thought of amongst, uh, deadheads. And, uh, those were all fantastic. And anyhow, so I've been, uh, I think I was probably a bit more tentative at the start diving down the Grateful Dead rabbit's hole. And even still six years into it, I seem to have this thing where whenever it's a, a song of theirs, I haven't heard before or a, a year or period of their, their touring history that I haven't, really listened to before I'm always kind of hesitant of it um and I'm not sure why because they consistently pleasantly surprise me and even a song that I thought on the first listener to I didn't like that much I end up really appreciating uh especially if I dig into the uh the meaning of the lyrics uh but anyhow so it's been a a bit of a more cautious descent uh, into the deep end with them. But the awesome thing about exploring the Grateful Dead is that the rabbit's hole goes very, very deep. They have much more songs than Zeppelin and uh, many more available recordings and higher quality recordings. They were around for 30 years compared to 12 for Zeppelin and toured incessantly much deeper into their career than than Zeppelin did and then as far as the the percentage of good recordings available per show they had a, a much different approach than Zeppelin did they uh, it was more communal and uh, I don't really have 
really know how to put it, but they they encouraged people to uh, to tape their shows, and uh, they even had little sectioned off areas for like tapers sections at their shows where uh, you know tapers could bring good equipment and know that they were sitting in a part where it wasn't going to get too rowdy and people were going to leave their stuff undisturbed and they would let people. Uh, plug directly into the soundboard, which is part of why so many soundboard recordings uh, of theirs exist. And they also professionally recorded a lot of shows, which is why there are so many official releases. So it's like, it's a bit more welcoming if you decide that you're going to start going down the rabbit's hole with them, because at least sound quality isn't another barrier on top of the unknown of songs and live areas that you haven't heard before. Zeppelin, on the other hand, did not record many of their shows, which was short-sighted in hindsight. But Peter Grant, who was their manager, who was brilliant in a lot of ways, I think handicapped them in this regard because he was, on the one hand, he was right in that he was adamant that the best way to experience them was in the flesh. So in order to encourage the maximum number of people to do that and go to a concert of theirs, he uh, basically flatly refused having them on TV and they never released a single in the UK and only released a couple in the States. But anyway, that attitude also carried over into his approach to bootleg recorders at their concerts. He wasn't just not encouraging it like the Grateful Dead did. He actively discouraged it and would destroy people's equipment if he caught them taping their shows, which resulted in uh, tapers for the most part having to bring much smaller and uh, inferior equipment uh, to record Zeppelin shows so that they could smuggle it in their shirt or whatever they had to do. The one notable exception to that is a guy named Mike Millard, who uh, will come up, I'm sure, in later episodes. Uh, he, um, he recorded a lot of Zeppelin and Queen, Pink Floyd, Stones, and uh, other people's shows in Los Angeles primarily, and sometimes he would go to ones in San Diego uh, in the 70s, and he was ingenious in that he pretended to be in a wheelchair so that he could A, bring in really good equipment and cover it with a blanket under his legs, and also be given uh, priority seating because of his, uh, you know, air quotes, handicap, uh, which is obviously not a very politically correct or kind thing to do, I guess, but those of us in the Zeppelin community are very grateful to him for it because uh, it means that we have really high-quality audience recordings of some of their best shows because they loved playing in L.A. Um, so anyhow... If you haven't noticed already, Zeppelin and Grateful Dead are 
it, well, Led Zeppelin is my favorite band, uh, and Grateful Dead maybe our second at this point. It's been the Stones in the in the the two spot for a long time. I'm not sure if the Dead have passed them, but anyhow, uh, I listen to much more of their live recordings than the Stones because uh, the Stones don't improvise nearly as much, so there isn't as much variety to to make it worthwhile uh, collecting a bunch of shows, certainly not from the same year. Uh, so all of that to say, this, uh, this show is mostly going to focus, I think at this point, at least on Led Zeppelin and Grateful Dead live history, because that's what I know the most about. Um, that may be subject to change. Uh, oh, also, I guess I should uh, mention why Led Zeppelin are my favorite. Um, there's just something incredibly powerful about their music. It just sounds like raw, unbridled energy and bravado and virtuosity and it's really uh quite intoxicating at times of just today i was listening to uh their second show in new york in 1972 and during dazed and confused i almost like choked on my chips that i was eating it just like hit me all over again like it was the first time hearing them and nobody else makes me feel quite that way no matter how much i like their stuff uh there's just something different about how zeppelin's music hits you in the gut and totally arrests your attention and grateful dead are quite different in that respect their music's just sort of floats there off to the side and slowly draws you in and you can sort of float in and out uh, both uh, good in different ways uh, as far as that's concerned. Um, I'm not, uh, I don't think I have anything more to say about all of, oh, okay, I'll stop talking about my influences, but I will quickly mention uh, my own personal uh, musical uh, career, if you can call it that. I'm a drummer. I started playing while banging on pots and pans when I was, uh, before I could walk. And then I got my first little toy kit when I was three or four. And then a real kit for Christmas when I was eight and started taking lessons at that point, stopped when I was 14 and didn't really play them too much. Uh, the first two and a half years of high school. Then I started to get back into it. And, uh, maybe after during some, at some point during my first year in university, excuse me, I really got back into playing and took it much more seriously than I had when I was younger, taking lessons and started to finally make some traction and get reasonably good. Uh, and I decided that I would really like to start a band, which had been a dream of mine when I was 
you know, 10 or 12 and, uh, I had kind of forgotten about it. And so I talked about it for a year or two and wasn't entirely sure how to go about doing it. And also one of the things with, uh, my personality, I guess I'm always hesitant to get into action. I'm always thinking like, Oh, I'm not quite ready yet. We need to get more prepared, more prepared, more prepared. And then one day I was like talking about it to my dad, like, Oh, it'd be so cool once I have a band. And he said, why don't you stop talking about it and do it? And I thought like, Oh, well, uh, I don't really have a good answer to that. Um, but it was just the kick in the pants that I needed. Uh, so I made a poster and plastered it all over the the basement of the student center at McMaster. Had no idea that you're supposed to get posters approved by the student union, but uh, they stayed up long enough for a few people to uh, text me back. And uh, about a month or so later, because it was around exam times, we uh, had our first rehearsal in May of 2016. And uh, my dad brought my younger brother down to uh, to play guitar, and we started a band. And the lineup changed a little bit, but uh, my brother and I were the two constants throughout. And we were together for a little over three years, and it was a really fantastic experience, uh, especially for somebody pretty introverted like me to... Uh, to force yourself out of your shell to that extent and get up on stage in front of people who you don't know and some of you do know, which can sometimes be even more nerve wracking. And uh, especially when we started to play originals and you're, you know, exposing something that personal as lyrics you've written a lot of times about some romantic thing, uh, exposing those to the world it's a scary thing, but then when they're received well, it suddenly flips to a euphoric feeling and you get kind of hooked on that and just the feeling of being on stage and the the energy exchange between the band and the crowd. And I I really wanted to, to do that for a career and I I was committed to it and my brother was, I think, Sometimes, maybe uh, not everybody in the group was on the same page that way. I could be wrong, but anyhow, we uh, we just lived too far apart, all of us, and uh, none of us um, at the time had cars of our own, and it just became too hard to continue uh, progressing it's kind of plateaued with the uh, the amount that we were able to practice and throw in some artistic differences and a couple bruised egos and uh, it was over a little over a year ago. So I went back to school this past year for public relations at uh, Sheridan College here and uh, finished that and then was supposed to be doing an internship in something this summer when the, the uh, 
coronavirus exploded onto the scene and forced us all into our homes for a while. So I thought, uh, why not use this time uh, productively and start this podcast? Uh, I'd been told for a couple of years, actually, that I had a good voice for radio, which uh, is better than being told you have a face for radio. And I thought like, yeah, that wouldn't be so bad because uh, my grandma's always saying like, oh, you should be a teacher, you should be a teacher. And I don't, that doesn't really appeal to me as far as like everything that goes into being a teacher, but the lecturing itself, I think could be kind of cool, but only if there existed courses in something that I'm really passionate about, which unfortunately for me is basically only music and sports. Uh, and also they don't just let anybody teach a university class, even if uh, there were programs in Led Zeppelin and Grateful Dead history. So I had to settle for giving little lectures to myself while I was walking the dog and uh, then one day I just thought, hey, we learned how to do podcasting in school this year. Why don't I order a microphone and do it? So here we are. Uh, I think that concludes this first episode. I'm sorry that I was a little bit rambling and uh, scattered. Uh, I think future episodes that have a, a clearer focus should be easier for you to follow. So I hope you will stick with it. Uh, thank you so much for stopping by and I'll see you next time. Class dismissed.